Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of 90.5 WESA's Good Question Podcast. I'm host Katie Blackley, thrilled to be back with you all for more stories about Pittsburgh history and culture. This season, we'll introduce you to the first Black city councilor, we'll learn about the Panthers that roam the region, and we'll take a ride on the dips in Westview Park. All of our stories are inspired by you, our curious listeners. After the break, Carnegie or Carnegie? Everywhere else I've lived, they say Carnegie, but here they say Carnegie, with a bigger emphasis on the middle syllable. Stay with us. WESA's Good Question podcast is made possible with support from Baum Boulevard Automotive, Eisler Landscapes, and the CPA firm Sisterson & Company. Whether it's Carnegie or Carnegie, no matter how it's pronounced, the name of the Pittsburgh industrialist can be found all over Western Pennsylvania, but the delivery of the name can change depending on who's saying it. Good Question listener Ali Scar has lived all around the country and says she's never heard the word pronounced like it is in Western Pennsylvania. Everywhere else I've lived, they say Carnegie, but here they say Carnegie, with a bigger emphasis on the middle syllable. And I was just wondering why. This region is filled with buildings and institutions that bear the name of steel magnate Andrew Carnegie. But about six miles southwest of Pittsburgh, there's a whole town named after him. This is one of my favorite items. This was uh, donated to us. This is Jeff Keenan with the Carnegie Borough Historical Society. They're special people. We bring this out, you'll hear this, and you'll just want to dance. There we go. Keenan closes the top of a large vintage record player. The museum is filled with donated items that date back many decades. Carnegie was established in 1894. The small boroughs of Chartiers and Mansfield had been sharing municipal services and decided to merge. Town officials held a contest for what to name the newly combined community. And as a nod to one of the region's biggest employers... They voted, and his name was picked as to the name for the town. The people in that town would have, and still do, pronounce it the way that Andrew Carnegie himself would have, the Scottish way. Carnegie was born in Dunfermline, Scotland, before emigrating to Pittsburgh as a child. Keenan says he knows people in New York, for example, where the famous music hall is located. They pronounce it differently, Carnegie. But not in western Pennsylvania. It just, it's just like, why do we have North Versailles and Francis Versailles, Du Bois, Du Bois? It's, I think it has a lot to do with how people misunderstood the difference between pronunciation and spelling. But this is Carnegie, not Carnegie. Linguistics expert Barbara Johnstone says it's tricky to talk about correct pronunciation of proper nouns, but it is helpful to know how the name's owner may have said it. He would have pronounced it Carnegie. How it was transformed into Carnegie in almost every other region outside of western Pennsylvania likely has to do with Pittsburgh's relative isolation when it comes to dialects. Geographically, traveling to the city was a difficult journey, which is why much of the area's language is so regionally specific. Plus, the huge influx of immigrants speaking multiple languages added to the area's unique accent. That set it apart from the rest of the country, according to Johnstone. In English, uh, if you have a word like that with three syllables, they stress is typically on the first syllable. So if you think of a word like carnival, Carnegie, carnival, or character with three syllables, where the the default way to pronounce a word with three syllables, with certain exceptions, is to put the stress on the first syllable. When it comes to those local institutions, it really depends on the speaker and their relationship with the region as to how they'll say the name. But the different pronunciations don't bother Carnegie Borough residents. Jeff Keenan says if a visitor to the Historical Society says Carnegie, that's just fine. In the, in the realm of all that's important, as my father would say, I don't think it's, it's worth getting upset. 
After the break, we'll take a trip to Shenley Park, where a dedicated crew of Public Works employees have been decorating benches for the Pirates, St. Patrick's Day, and more for years. WESA's Good Question podcast is made possible with support from Eisler Landscapes, the CPA firm Sisterson & Company, and Baum Boulevard Automotive. In Pittsburgh's Shenley Park, there's a colorful decorated bench. Sometimes it's painted like an American flag or covered in shamrocks, and sometimes it's decked out for the buckos. Listener Ann Johansson from Point Breeze wondered about it. And I've always wondered who paints it. I've never seen anybody around there. And I don't know, maybe there are gnomes from Shenley Park that come and paint it in the middle of the night. Tucked away in Pittsburgh's Hazelwood neighborhood behind an old red brick car barn is the crew that makes sure Shenley Park is clean, safe, and scenic. We do everything. We we cut the grass, we repair the playground equipment, run mad special events. You know, like That's Gary Shuley, the foreman of the city's Shenley Division. He's been working for Pittsburgh Parks for over 20 years, overseeing operations and managing 26 employees. But he's also the driving force behind the vibrant benches on the corner of Bartlett Street and Panther Hollow Road. Dealer bench was the first one we did because uh, they were having a really good season. And that corner where the benches are at is a real well-known corner. Some are seasonal, like Easter. Others are for causes like breast cancer awareness or prisoners of war missing in action. The paintings on them just got more extravagant, you know, because we started with just block letters and some, and uh, that, that's it, you know. So just when we have time, we make them. Shuley says it's definitely just a side project for the Shenley Division. No one is assigned to make certain benches. It just happens if they have a free moment or if it's too stormy to work on something. Like a lot of times when the guys come, hey, you know, they'll ask about the benches and, well, can you draw or can you paint? And yeah, okay, well, here, try it. Because the work isn't a priority, the benches can take anywhere from three days to a few weeks. For the most part, they're rehabs of old, rusted, or broken benches. We clean them, weld them, we might make one, we cut new wood, we paint them, and then we paint them according to whatever's going on in my head as to what the next bench we want out is. On a visit to Shenley Park in late August, the bench on display was forest green with painted colorful leaves surrounding the message, Welcome to Shenley Park. While we're on the topic of Pittsburgh sports, our final story today is all about the Pirates. There were people jumping off the Clemente Bridge, just doing summers. It was just, it was just, which was crazy, but it was just a great time to be a Pirate fan. Stay with us. WESA's Good Question podcast is made possible with support from the CPA firm Sisterson & Company, Baum Boulevard Automotive, and Eisler Landscapes. From racing pierogies to spectacular skyline views, Pittsburgh Pirates games are staples for many city residents. Good Question asker Gil Maher currently lives in Brooklyn, New York, but he grew up in Wilkinsburg. While reading about the history of Pirates on New York's Hudson River, he wondered... You know, I was wondering if the Pirates were named after River Pirates... How did the beloved baseball team get its name? Let's go back to Pittsburgh in 1882. About 150,000 residents lived here, mostly industrial workers. The Smithfield Street Bridge was being built, and the city had just formed a professional baseball team that would go on to be called the Pittsburgh Pirates. Team historian Jim Tradinich says it started with a familiar name. And we were the Pittsburgh Alleghenies, and we held that title for about five years. Tradinich says the team played in a league called the American Association and later joined the National League of Baseball. Back then, leagues would form and fold and many players would bounce between clubs. One of those players was second baseman Louis Bierbauer. Louis Bierbauer, who played for the Philadelphia Athletics, that did not go back to the Athletics. He came to the Pittsburgh team. 
and there was an outcry among the leagues, and this, this team is pirating this guy away from the Philadelphia Athletics, and the name Pirates stuck ever since. Newspapers soon picked up on the name, and it first appeared on uniforms in 1912. And while the name was changing, the team was bouncing to new stadiums. Since the late 1800s, the team has played in five ballparks, currently PNC Park on the North Shore, which opened in 2001. Before that was Three Rivers Stadium, 1970, and before that was Forbes Field, which started in 1910-ish to the 1970s, and before that was Exposition Park, still on the north side of Pittsburgh, and Recreation Park before that. Next up, good question asker Laura Everhart wondered, I was curious about how many baseballs the Pirates use each game on average. In Major League Baseball, balls have to be muddied with dirt from the Delaware River. Recently, the league even instructed clubhouses exactly how to, quote, paint the balls before they could be used. They also have to be authenticated. But Tradinich did have a number. Roughly about 120 on average per game. And how many home runs have landed in the nearby Allegheny? About 50 total since the stadium opened in 2001. We've only had, I want to say, four, maybe five that have landed on a fly, and the other 45 have bounced in the river. Listener Matthew Gary was curious about another object flying over crowds at games. The question I sent in was whether the hot dogs that are launched out of a cannon at PNC Park are edible or not. We've stopped doing the hot, we do t-shirts now. We used to do hot dogs and they were real hot dogs and they were edible. I wouldn't have eaten them, but I've heard they were edible. Nowadays, it's mostly t-shirts in those cannons, but the ballpark does have $1 hot dog nights each season. Tradinich says the 2013 wildcard game against the Cincinnati Reds is one of his favorite memories. This place was rocking. The team had just come off of 20 straight years of losing seasons. And we won that game. There were people jumping off the Clemente Bridge, just doing summers. I was just, it was just, which was crazy, but it was just a great time to be a Pirate fan. And about those racing pierogies, the sprinting dumplings have been a part of Pirates games since the late 1990s. Tradinich says it's always fun to see how the team's entertainment crew manages to keep it interesting for Jalapeno Hannah, Cheese Chester, Oliver Onion, and the other racers. Someone's going to trip somebody. The parrot's going to knock somebody out. Hannah's going to smack somebody with her purse. You never know what's going to happen. The year of that wild card game Tradinich described, 2013, was an exciting time in Pittsburgh. Earlier that summer, 580 hand-stitched Afghan panels enveloped the Andy Warhol Bridge. It was called Knit the Bridge, and at the time was considered one of the largest yarn bombing projects in the U.S. Knitting and crocheting artists from across the region helped to cover the span, and it was incredibly colorful. A few months later, the giant rubber duck arrived. The four-story inflatable yellow duck floated down Pittsburgh's rivers, bringing awe and delight. Thanks for listening to 90.5 WESA's Good Question podcast. Special thank you to Patrick Doyle and everyone at Pittsburgh Community Broadcasting. And thank you for making this second season happen. I'm Katie Blackley. Stay curious.